Good morning. It is my great pleasure to uh, continue our study uh, through Ecclesiastes um, as we continue really our journey through what I would consider to be uh, one of the most profound uh, apologetics uh, in, um, in Scripture, uh, a really a pattern of apologetics for us uh, in terms of what it means to live life under the sun, and if your mere vantage point was only under the sun, what would be your conclusions? And if you uh, were born again, and you had God's Word available to you, that you could have a heavenly perspective and navigate your life accordingly. Uh, one being a foolish pattern of life, that only limited to under the sun, and the other being one of a heavenly perspective, a heavenly-minded perspective, um, that gave you a very practical understanding, wisdom, which we know to be applied knowledge in God's world. And so with that said, let's uh, uh, pray and ask the Lord for help in this time of study. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, your word is so important to you, enough that you would give it to us, you would preserve it and protect it over time, that You've called us to meditate upon it and to chew on it. To reason through it as though reasoning with you. That it would give us clarity and perspective. A light, as it's described, to our feet, guiding us through our life. That it sets the framework for our interpretation of the created order. That it gives us the ability to rightly divide our lives as we rightly divide your word. And Lord, we know that uh, in some cases, some things are very difficult to navigate in life. Things that are unsure, circumstances that are difficult, many painful challenges that we face, difficulties with health, difficulties with wealth, difficulties with all sorts of things in life. And we know that your word has the answers, but we must go through it, dig through it, as though a hidden treasure. And Lord, I pray that we would be all the better for it today. Lord, I pray you'd help me um, bring to remembrance uh, my studies in this, in this uh, text particularly, and that I would be faithful in delivering it to your people in Jesus' name. Uh, today, the title of today's sermon is uh, Wisdom Considered. As we read in our scripture reading today, Proverbs 8, I hope that uh, you have a clear picture as it's described as lady wisdom uh, in the scriptures. Uh, Lady wisdom being an expression of the master worker. Lady wisdom being present in the beginning of creation. Lady wisdom is the one, uh, as Jonathan prayed, an expression of the Lord himself uh, being the one who set all things in order. And at the end of it, if you notice, it says there are two two types. There are two two types of people uh, that will engage with lady wisdom. One will be a fool who rejects what Lady Wisdom has to say, won't receive what she has to say. And it says that those people hate, hate their lives, quite literally. They hate her, they love death. And then there's the other uh, person, the other group of people are blessed. Their life is enriched. And it's enriched beyond monetary wealth. It's enriched like a treasure, uh, but is everlasting treasure. It's one that you build up, one that you store away. Uh, one that should be pursued beyond any uh, worldly desire um, because it is quite literally eternal wealth, right? And it's something that you could practically express in your life on a daily basis. 
Now, wisdom considered in this case, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to be exploring uh, chapter 7 as we enter into the back half of Ecclesiastes. Um, this is an interesting uh, passage. Uh, quite interesting if you, if you look at it. Uh, we'll go through verses, uh, we'll, we'll attempt, let me say we'll attempt, verses 1 through 14 today. I might need a part two, Jonathan, we'll see. Uh, but uh, because there's so much here, it's so rich, it's so beautiful, it's so profound. Um, what I want you to do is, uh, I want you to look at verse 13 with me real quick in, in Ecclesiastes verse 13. Think carefully about this. Consider the work of God. Now remember, Lady Wisdom was there at the foundation of creation. This is the work of God. This is the active, providential work of God, right? Listen to what it says. It says, who can make straight what he has made crooked. Now, I read right past that when I first read this. And some of you might have just like, what, what are you trying to get at, bro? What, what's your point here? Read it again. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Wait a second here. He's not the author of chaos. God is the one who orders things, isn't he? Right? We read right in, the, in, in Proverbs 8 that he is the one that, that set all things in order. Remember, in Genesis, it's a reflection of Genesis chapter 1. What did God say at the very end of Genesis chapter 1 as he finished his creative work? He looked at it, he beheld it, and what did he say? It was very good. Everything was in its right place, its rightful order. Then we have to ask ourselves the hard question here. Why is God making things crooked here? And why is he saying we can't make straight what God's made crooked? I believe that is really the interpretive grid that we have to look at the previous verses. And really, if I might say, much of Ecclesiastes. Because remember, life under the sun in our experience oftentimes is not straight, is it? It's not. Matter of fact, much of our lives are really filled with difficulty. As a matter of fact, the, the word itself, uh, the, the most prominent word in Ecclesiastes is what? Habel, right? Vanity, vain, this, this idea of meaninglessness, a vapor, a chasing after the wind, right? So much of our life is really crookedness. <laughs> it's an experience of crookedness. Anybody who's been around this earth maybe longer than I have would know that and have experienced that a number of times, amen? Right? We're Baptists here, we say amen. Right? I say this in the prison ministry. Thank you. Thank you in the back section. Right, so we experience um, crookedness mostly, for the most part. Rarely, if I might say, do we experience just this like perfection of straightness, this perfect order. Our, our life is constantly this traveling and travailing through crookedness. And look, who's the author of that crookedness? It's the Lord Himself. And by the way, you can't make it straight. So, I think that's the interpretive grid that we have to look through verses 1 through 12. And may I say, all of the book, for the most part, of Ecclesiastes is that way. This is what I would say is that is the preacher, Solomon, his chief complaint. And it's, and it's an appeal to say, there is a gem of wisdom to be found here that you will only experience in as much as you properly understand that it is the Lord himself who brings this providential crookedness into your life. There's something to be gleaned and there's something to be learned from it. That's really interesting when you think about that. I, I, I didn't... It didn't hit me until I was like almost done with my study. I'm like, man, we'll read through this here in a second. You're gonna, we're going to read through this text together. 
I almost guarantee you, while, we're, while you're reading through it, you're going to go, what is he talking about? How does that make sense? How is this? I had to go through multiple different versions of the Bible to see if maybe there was more sense to be made. Because I really, personally, I don't speak Hebrew. It, this has provoked me to want to speak Hebrew. I got, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start doing a Hebrew set. I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to dig into it. Because I want to understand what in the heck he's talking about. Because I really don't believe the English does any justice whatsoever for this text. It's really hard to understand. Let's, let's just do it. Let's, let's go through this real quick. Okay, Verse 1, chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. And most people would say, yeah, totally. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of birth. What in the world? Think about that. What is that? Why are you even putting those two things together? This good name and this day of death better than birth. What the heck? I'm reading that. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Uh, Two, it is better to go through the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. What? Most of the time in Scripture, feasting is exalted as a good thing. Mourning, not so much. Now, why is it that that's better? And what house is he talking about? Like That, that is really confusing when you think about it. That's because we're not Jewish. <laughs> it's because we don't know Hebrew. I'm convinced of it. Let's keep going. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of the face of the heart is made glad. What? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Hang on a second, Solomon, good grief. Like most of the Proverbs talk about mirth as being a blessing from God. Why is this this, this house of mourning better than mirth? Why is it better to be sad and mourning than feast? That is, re- and, and this is where the wise dwell. The wise understand it. The wise get this. Continuing on. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise, right? Than to hear the song of fools. Now, now we're like, we're coming back. The plane's being landed. We're okay. Now I, I, I'm tracking with you there. For the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity, right? Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Surely the oppression, uh, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Do, do you see what's happening here? You guys might be different, but I'm, I'm tracking here. The last two have been much easier to track. There's only been a couple places where I'm like, yeah, that's good. Everything else so far has been really confusing. It really has for me, at least. Better is the end of the thing than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Yep. And for any of you who've gone through Proverbs, you've heard these things before. It's, it's all over the Proverbs, right? It's because Solomon wrote the majority of them. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger, anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, where, why were the former days better than these? For it is not of wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good, with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see in uh, the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like a protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. That's really fascinating. Okay. 
Proverbs chapter 1, I believe, gives us a little bit of insight into uh, what Solomon's driving at here. Let's read verses 1 through 7 together. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying. And then listen, the words of wise and their riddles. There's, there are straight-up riddles in Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 12. And how do you understand that? What is the framework? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's something about the fear of God that you must possess in order to gain a knowledge in order to break down the riddles here, the Proverbs that Solomon is trying to convey to you. If you do not have a fear of God, you will not understand. This will fly straight over your head. And what's really interesting is you're going to have a reaction of one of two people groups. You're going to be the one who only observes things under the sun, right? Who are the wicked. The wicked who believe that there's nothing available to us from God to guide our lives. There is no word from God. All we have is our limited life experience here on earth, and we have to do the best with it that we can. You're a fool. You're going to mock this. You're going to rebuke this. You're going to laugh at it. You're going to reject this entirely. And then there are the God-fears. Interesting enough, in the end of Ecclesiastes, which I believe is also a framework which we must interpret this through, uh, Solomon concludes in chapter 12, verse 13, he says, The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You must live, he's saying here, in light of a fear of God. In order to have this wisdom to navigate this life, as he says in Proverbs 1, uh, uh, with insight, instruction, in right, dealing in righteousness, justice, equity, prudence, discretion. You must hear this and increase in your learning in order to grasp what he's trying to convey to us and in, in Ecclesiastes 7. So with that interpretive grid, I want you to think in light of the broader picture of Ecclesiastes. For those who are just joining us here, this will be new for those uh, who have been here um, and, and gone through this study uh, with us together. This will be reviewed, but it's good to hear these things over again. I believe the structure of the overall book, chapters 1 through 2, deal with our creaturely limitations. It kind of sets us into a place like, yes, you live in this life. It is a vain life under the sun. Much of it that you experience, as he's saying here in chapter 7, is crooked. A lot of that experience is crooked. It seems vain, and much of it is. It's grasping for the wind, quite honestly. You spend a whole life, your whole life, uh, working for what seems to be nothing at the end of it. Some of you amass something, some of you gain some things, but it all gets stripped away from you. Why? Because you die. All of you die. So what he's trying to get at is, in chapters 1 through 2, man is powerless to prescribe meaning or enjoy anything. Again, listen, you have, in and of yourself, you are incapable of ascribing meaning or experience joy in anything apart from God giving you that ability, right? In chapters 3 through 5, you need to realize that you are uh, under the authority of a sovereign creator. Everything is his. It's all his. Every single molecule, down to the last little bit, 
And His will is beyond our limited comprehension or understanding. Uh, the only things that we understand about God's will is what He's revealed to us. That's it. And much this is a very limited perspective for us who live under life under the sun. And so we need to respect that and trust that. That despite what we're experiencing, despite our, our circumstances, despite our life, that we need to, with Paul, if I might say in Romans 11, conclude, oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul concludes this after one of the most profound arguments defending the gospel in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. And he concludes with that. Hey, listen, there's a lot of things that we just don't understand about the workings of God. And Solomon's saying the same thing in a way. He's saying, yep, and a lot of those ways are crooked. We call them, and some have described it this way, a bitter providence. And those things are hard to understand. I'm, lim- I'm incapable of understanding the depths of them. In chapter 6, 8-15, through 15, um, God is the one, the sovereign creator over all things, is the one who is in control of all things, and He's the one who empowers one's ability to understand and have joy in anything. We learned that someone could have all the wealth in the world, and not experience an ounce of joy. And someone could be the brokest person on the planet and experience an outbursting and overflowing of joy. It's because God has empowered him to do that, to enjoy that. That meaning can only be found for those who fear God. Just a reminder, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his law. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his law and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joys in his heart. So remember that as we go through this next text. And then the conclusion to the the book itself, the the conclusion, the conflict resolution in the book um, from chapter 8, 16, uh, through 1214, um, I believe is, is, is arguing toward a proper perspective changes everything. And again, this proper perspective only comes from God's Word. And might I say, a regenerate heart and mind. You must be a new creature in Christ in order to have this perspective, in order to appreciate it, in order to grow in it uh, and, and begin to experience a joy in the crooked, a joy in the vanity, a joy in the vapor, right, of this life, okay? So again, remember, Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of this knowledge, right? Fools reject it. Which category are you in? That's a big question I'm going to be asking today over and over again. Which category do you find yourself in, okay? Let's look at the first text um, in chapter 7. A good reputation, right? So a, a good name is better than precious ointment. And that also that word could be perfume. And I looked into this word. Um, to make an oil or, or a perfume, and, and it was done usually with animal fat, was a very um, arduous and expensive endeavor. This was a very expensive thing okay, to have, to, to be an owner of. And it was used in both the sacred and 
uh, the menial. It was used for both, right? So you had sacred acts that um, involved oils, and you had um, just everyday life practical acts, you know, people from spraying themselves to make themselves smell better, okay? But it was a, it was a uh, very arduous task to make these things. And then he goes on to, to somehow compare it. He says, and, which is really interesting that he would join these two concepts together. You have this good name, this reputation that is compared to precious ointment, this very expensive product, okay? And then you have this day of death and the day of birth. <laughs> so the day of death is better than the day of birth. Anyone reading that should go, wait a second, what are you talking about, Solomon? How, how are you comparing these two? Well, a good reputation um, deals with uh, a righteous moral character. It's the best way I could think of describing it. Um, and that, that, that righteous moral character, remember as Lady Wisdom was describing it, is greater than wealth and treasure, greater than these expensive oils, these consumables, whether it be sacred or not. Um, it's better to have a good name. It's chosen better than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold, the Proverbs in Proverbs 21, 22, 1 says. Think about it. A good reputation is something that is built and it has to be maintained over time. It can't be created or purchased like an expensive oil or a perfume, right? It's, it's something that you are known by. You know, I've said this a number of times. As God is known by his word, so are we. As his image bearers, think about it. Our word represents us. And when we say things, those words are representative of who and what we are. It represents our moral character. And it's something that has to be built. It has to be established in order to build trust with people over time. You have to be good as your word. Your word represents you, right? And so that's something that, that is lasting. And you could ruin that. You could violate that. You could destroy that. What's interesting is you could keep making the perfumes. You could keep making the oils. You could keep doing those things just as well. And you might have this horrible reputation as a vendor, but you make these awesome perfumes, this awesome oil, right? It's interesting. There's a distinction there. One you can totally destroy and dismantle in, in a moment, and the other one is still a consumable that can be made and produced by anyone. That's interesting to me. So think about this as we think about the day of death and the day of birth. Okay, um, One with godly character has more to look forward to in dying and facing the judgment of God, as we see in Ecclesiastes 12.14, right? where God brings all things into, uh, he exposes all things, he brings all things into judgment, than those who are born in sin, dying in their sin and their trespasses. That makes sense. A person who has built a godly reputation, a person who is good as their word, who depends on God's word, has way more to look forward to at death than those who have spent an entire life in their sins and trespasses. I think that's a really great way of explaining that in light of the, the text, in light of here's this vain life, you live under the sun, you have this group of godly people who are fearing God and living according to his commandments, knowing that all things will be brought into uh, exposure before the living God, their whole life, the, everything, every word, thought, and deed, everything. That's incredible when you think about that, right? Those in Christ have way more to look forward to. Those who, in this case, in Solomon's time, who look forward to the promised hope and the Messiah, and the redemption of their sins had way more to look forward to in the resurrection as they faced the living God than those who were dead in, in their sins. That makes sense. And notice how he buttresses this right with uh, um, the next passage. But look here. Uh, Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The memory of the righteous... 
Proverbs 10.7 says, is a blessing. But the name of the wicked will rot. In Hebrews 11, um, this passage of the faithful, right? It says, consider, you know, I, I would s- encourage you to consider the lessons of those, the memories of those men and women whom the world was not worthy versus the wicked. Consider their lives. Consider their testimonies. Notice how the Scripture brings it up and says, look what they endured. Look what they went through. If I might say, the crookedness, the providential crookedness of their life, knowing some face death for the testimony that they had in Christ. Some face death for being prophets. Some face death uh, being sawn in two even. right? Um, children taken from them and so on for their testimony in the Word of God. Consider their crooked path. Let's look at Psalm 1. It's funny, Greg brought that up this morning. I'm like, wow. So much of what I'm going to cover today is here. Psalm 1. Let's read it. Let's go through it real quick together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. All the same kind of people that Solomon's describing, right? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law, he meditates on it day and night. He wants it to be ever before him. He wants the knowledge of the Lord. He wants to walk in the fear of God. And this person is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that wind drives away. One is described as this firmly planted tree in this water, this life-giving water, where it's always bearing fruit. And the other one is described as something that is an extra carcass of a seed that is blown away. Chaff is that outer coating, right, of the, of the grain that is crushed, and then that outer coating falls to the floor, and it's swept away and blown away. It has no foundation. It's just to be removed and destroyed. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Look at this. They're facing the judgment. They're going to face it just like everyone else says. They're not going to be able to stand. Nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous, this ultimate people of God. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There will be an end to it. So then the question is, which group will we fall in? Which group will we stand in before the Lord? I believe that's exactly what Solomon's trying to challenge us with here. What group? Now think about it. That will preach. You could take that directly to the streets, right? It's a beautiful apologetic for those who, one, live life under the sun, who rejoice in their wickedness, and the others who are trusting in the Lord despite what they're experiencing. One can be a word of rebuke and call to repentance. The other could be a word of correction, a word of encouragement to those who are walking faithfully. Now let's dig through this. Uh, It is better to go, verse 2, into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. Okay, so again, look at this. Two contrasts of two people groups. You have this house of mourning and there's a house of feasting. Then there's this eschatological reference, the end of all mankind. Eschatological meaning history is moving towards a particular direction. God is providentially working it toward a particular end. We know its ultimate aim will be found in Christ. And so, think about that. Solomon would have known that. Solomon would have known there's a hope in the, the messianic promise. There's this end of mankind that the house of mourning and the house of feasting will experience. Okay? And you're going to, the living, and I think that's a very important reference. There's the living and the dead. There's only two group people groups in, in this particular. So you have house of mourning, who are the living, house of feasting, who are the dead. 
house of mourning, who are the, the, the righteous, uh, house of feasting, who are the wicked. There's an end for both groups, and the living know it. The living will lay it to heart. Who is the God of? The God of the what? Is God of the God of living or the God of dead? God of what? Yeah, he's the God of the living. I think that's a really important reference. Very important. Something that we should consider very carefully. Okay. And in light of this, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. Sadness in the face of heart is made glad. There's this sadness in the face of the heart that is made glad. The heart of the wise is, is the house of the morning. He just Now he's, he's interpreting it for us. There's this wisdom that's a part of the house of the morning, being a righteous group of people. And the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth or jubilation. Why? Well, again, like I said, it's a tale of two households, one of mourning and sadness, one of feasting and jubilation, that relate to an eschatological end that the living will understand and take it to heart. So why would mourning be positively reflected here and feasting not? That's interesting. So why would mourning be positively reflected and, and, and not feasting? Okay. Um, well, in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, I had to look this up, I, I thought this is really interesting. I, why would this be a better place to be in? So one element of mourning you guys are probably well familiar with is you mourn the dead. When, when people depart from us, that's a sad thing. We mourn their deaths, right? But there's also another element to mourning which is best expressed in Jeremiah's Lamentations, okay? Uh, it says here that uh, this book of Lamentations is a reminder that the Jews' mourning is not always associated with death. It expressed brokenness of spirit or sin, individual and national sin. National calamity also evoked great lamentation, and that national calamity, as we've been discuss, uh, discussing in our Sunday school, is typically a result of this national sin, right? Calamity that God brings upon them in order to turn their hearts back to Him. He goes on to say these mourning rites were ex uh, expressive of great grief, but some of them, they tore their clothes, they wore sackcloth, they disfigured themselves with dust and ashes, they mutilated themselves. Um, and this religious significance for us, for the most part, would escape us um, because it's far removed um, from an inner feeling or a mood of mind. It's not just an involuntary outburst of feeling, but rather a deliberate, established ritual. And this is also found in the New Testament. Uh, and it differed from those in the Old Testament. Mourning is associated with Christ's second advent in Matthew 24. It says when they see him, they will mourn. That's really interesting. Here he comes in his glory, right? He's coming in the clouds. And it says, when they see him, they will mourn. Who will mourn? All the tribes of the earth. Wait a second. Why would they do that? Wouldn't we be like, yes! Yes! The Lord's here. He's come. All the eschatological point, you know, positions have now been solved. The Lord is here, right? No longer have to worry about pre-tribulational, post-tribulational, on-mill, post-mill, nothing. He's here. Yes, we can celebrate. The Lord is present. Why would people mourn? Who's mourning? Are the righteous mourning? The wicked are mourning. Oh, there he is. Now we're going to have to give an account. I believe that's exactly what you see in the second advent. It's associated with repentance in James. It's associated with Christ leaving. 
Remember what he said? He goes, you know, don't mourn now. I'm with you. Mourn when I go. You can fast then. It's associated with fasting, right? Mourning is associated with fasting. Christ's departure with deep spirituality as well as with death, okay? So true, the overthrow of, uh, of death by Jesus Christ was robbed by death of its sting and its grave of victory in 1 Corinthians 15. But the Christian still mourns, though not as though who have no hope. Now that's interesting. The Christian still mourns. So there's this idea, I think, that he's trying to express here. That while we do understand the reality of the world that we live in, we do face difficulties, trials, and tribulations. There is this difficulty in understanding, as, as uh, Solomon says, uh, in, in knowing the Word of God, being transformed in Christ, and yet still seeing what's going on in the world and experiencing the sin, the fallen nature of the world. We mourn, yet there is hope. It's not a, mourn, a mourning that is overwhelming. Um, I believe this idea is better expressed by Jesus himself. Uh, in Matthew, uh, on the Sermon of the Mount, go to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. Seeing the crowds, uh, verse 1, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught him, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Why would it be poor in spirit? You ever thought of that? What do you mean poor in spirit? What about like great, yeah, like wealth in spirit? Why, why is it the poor? Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. I believe though that mourning comes is, is just like Jeremiah's lamentation. Okay, uh, Those who are in Christ and those who know the word really well will look out into the world, look out into their experiences, and just be broken. There's a brokenness, guys, that we all experience, don't we? We experience it here within our fellowship. We experience it with our family members and our friends outside of this fellowship. We've all experienced incredible brokenness. And it seems as though the more we know the word and the closer we are to the Lord, the more we experience that. But you will be. He promises, yes, you're experiencing this. And of course, Jesus Christ himself experienced it the most, the, that, that, the great end being the cross, the greatest weeping, right? The greatest mourning, the greatest lamentation. But you're going to be comforted. That's a promise. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful. They shall receive mercy. The pure in heart, they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things falsely uh, on his account, on the Lord's account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when you're standing firm in the faith, you're going to experience some incredible trials and difficulties. You're going to experience some mourning. You're going to be poor in spirit at times. <laughs> you're going to struggle. And I believe that's exactly what Solomon is driving at. Like, there's an eschatological end for them. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. It's powerful. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 12. Let's just start there. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if that's not true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, and even Christ has been raised, 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by, by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For in his and Adam all die, and so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Going on in verse 30, 34, he carries on this argument. Okay. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, that by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. And then verses 50 through 58, he concludes, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor do the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. And when the imperishable puts on the imperishable, the perishable puts on the imperishable, um, and the mortal puts on immortality, then all shall come to pass, saying, that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why do I read that text in light of what we're reading in Ecclesiastes? Think about that. That's the eschatological end that we should be living in light of despite everything that we're experiencing. But how do the wicked respond? There's no resurrection. Think about when Paul was preaching all throughout the, the Roman Empire and Peter, but, but Paul particularly. What was one of the things that was brought up often as Paul would preach? What did they mock and scoff at? Particularly the pagans. I'm thinking of uh, his, his uh, preaching at the, at the Areopagus to the Areopagites in Acts 17. What did, what did they mock and scoff? What did they say? At, at the very end, if you remember anybody, your Bible students, you remember what they mocked at? The resurrection. Look, we were tracking with you, Paul, until you got this raising again from the dead. And you're saying one was raised from the dead as a sign, an ultimate example of what ultimately will happen with all? Yes. And they mocked and they scoffed. They laughed at him. No, no, no. The best hope that we have, and you hear, you hear this from unbelievers all the time. You people are so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You're no help here. All you're doing is busy looking at the future, which is true for most Christians, sadly. That they are no earthly good. But, but you're whole missing this here. All of our hope is caught up in this life. This is all you have. Do the best with what you have. And the Lord's like, yeah, both hands. Both hands, do both. Do the best you can with everything you have right now in your crooked situation, in your vaporous, vacuous life, chasing after the wind. 
where the Lord only empowers you to enjoy it. Do everything you have. Be a good steward with all things that you have available to you. Maximize it to the best of your ability. And if the Lord brings a bitter providence, rejoice. Rejoice. He brings adversity and uh, benefit. Both He brings, right? To the unbeliever, they, they, all they can say is, all of our hope is caught up in this life and in this moment now. I'm going to do the best with what I have. And your answer to, to them should be, why? You should be pitied amongst all men. Remember, their attitude is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If the resurrection of the dead, if we have no hope in it, what should what would our response be? Well, we're to be pitied amongst all men. Christ didn't raise from the dead. We have no hope. We are still dead in our sins. But he was raised from the dead. Look at Revelation 21. What it says in Revelation 21. Verses 1-8. through eight. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. From the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for former things have passed away. And he goes on. And he was seated on the throne. Behold, I am making all things new. He said, write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment to the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, unbelievers' only hope in this life is to face death twice. That preaches. That preaches. Are you going to face death twice? Are you going to be among those people who see that your only hope and your best life is now? And to live it now, and that's all you have. There's nothing before you, nothing after you. It's just this. There is no God in heaven. Nothing above us, nothing under us. Death is just the mere punctuation point at the end of your minuscule life. Or is there something more to this life? There's something more to know, something more to live by. That there is a God that you will ultimately face one day. So which household are you going to be in? The one of mourning or feasting? one of sadness or jubilation that's what we need to focus on this text going on in ecclesiastes 7 5 through 6 he continues on and he says it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear a song of fools this is also vanity for as a crackling i'm sorry the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools this is also vanity so there's this rebuke of the wise okay and then there's the song of the fools. And it's similar to crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools, right? So, in a sense, this is closing, uh, a closing call to consider everything that he has shared so far, right? You're either going to look at this and receive it as a rebuke of wisdom towards you, that someone who is wiser than you are, that understands the Word of God better than you do, who is the author, right? of the Word, this particular passage, as inspired by the Spirit of God, who we know brings conviction of sin and unrighteousness. 
You have a conscience that bears witness of those things. You're either hardening yourself towards those rebukes, those corrections, pressing yourself further away in your rebellion, or softening and receiving, you're considering and pondering, and you're applying. There are two people groups. One is going to be more apt to go, I'd rather listen to the song of fools who speak softly, peace, everything's good, everything's fine, all things are well, versus the the rebuke and the correction of the wise. You might be one among those numbers that go, I just didn't like the way he said that. I don't like his face. (laughs) Right? I don't like his attitude. You know, just rough. Yeah, but did you listen to what he said? What she said? Are you considering that it might be wisdom for you to listen, to heed, and to apply because they actually care enough to say it to you? Or would you rather drift off into the song of fools? Those who would love to whisper in your ear sweet nothings. Who just come alongside of you. Remember, misery loves company. I tell this to the folks out at Planned Parenthood all the time. Misery loves company. We love people who agree with us in our misery. And it's just so, oh, everything's fine. Everything's good. Don't listen to him. He's just hateful, right? He's hateful, bigoted, mean, spirited. Just, you know, heaping all sorts of condemnation on you. Or you're going, man, I need to listen to that. That's, that's true. Yeah, I didn't like the way he said it. Yeah, I didn't like the way she came across to me. Yeah, that was tough to hear. Woo, that was tough. You know, I even responded maybe the wrong way initially. But now, you know what? Man, I've thought about this. I've really prayed through it. And the Lord is convicting. He's working on me in my conscience. I need to hear what he has to say. I'm not going to be like the one who laughs and scoffs and mocks like the crackling thorns under a fire. Think about the crackling thorns. What a, what a beautiful way to understand this. Crackling thorns. There's no necessary like order to it. It's just snapping, crackling, and popping. Anybody who's lit a fire with some thorns knows that it's dangerous at times. Like, I mean, it just sends sparks everywhere. Think, just think about that. That is the, 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 the visual provided for a fool who laughs and mocks at God's wisdom. You're like that. And remember, thorns were a part of the fall. Thorns were a part uh, of God's curse on the earth and is only good for one thing, to be burned. It ruins man's life. It spoils his, his ability to, to reap benefit from the ground. And it's like the laughter of a fool in the, in the face of God's wisdom. Man, what a beautiful way to understand that. The way you've responded in your heart will demonstrate what household you're in. And only you know that. And God knows it, by the way. The way you respond to this sort of passage, to, to this wisdom, you know. Are you going to listen to the difficult words of the wise, those who love you enough to tell you hard things? Or will you sing and dance to the song of the fool and laugh obnoxiously? Remember what Proverbs says, don't reprove a scoffer, he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man, he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he'll still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and your years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Proverbs 17 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Now you can just pound someone and they'll never get it. Greg brought this up this morning about people who resist correction. They're always like, I'm just trying to understand you. 
thousands of blows later, I'm just trying to understand you. Psalm 14, or 141, excuse me, verse 5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Listen to that, guys. He says, he embraces a strike. He's like, let a righteous man strike me, for it is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Think about it. Oftentimes, that's not our response. We're like, I was smitten by a, a fool. You don't say righteous man. You're like, this guy's a fool. Hates me. Can't believe he said that to me. Oh my gosh. I reject it. That's not oil for my head. Shampoo in our modern days. Or the sweet beard oil. That's not oil. I hate it. I reject it. What does Proverbs 27, 6 say? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of your enemy. Meaning, a, a friend's going to come alongside of you. And, and Greg talked about this this morning. And I, I implore you to consider Greg's listening to Greg's uh, um, lesson this morning, which is excellent on church membership. Um, a lot of this stuff that we deal with and we battle with just as a church family, um, can be resolved in, in many ways, just like working through these texts together and thinking through these things. A brother or sister comes along to you and writes like, hey man, like think about it. It's not easy to come and correct someone. And for some people it is more than others, right? I, I tend to have no problem with that because I know that there's a benefit on the other side of it. It's hard. Like Conflict is hard. It's hard for everyone. I embrace conflict because I know that there's going to be this blessing on the other end of it. We're going to grow deeper together um, it's going to be refining for both of us. Uh, look, you know, if anybody's dealt with me for any length of time, they know, like, Jeremy's a heart. A little bit harder than Jonathan. A little firmer. A little more direct. And sometimes directness is mistaken as hatred. Directness is mistaken as, like, just being mean or, you know, pugnacious or whatever you want to call it, right? It's not. Directness is, is one of the most loving things you can do. Instead of beating around the bush, let's get to the point, let's work through this. Now, I've learned how to do that better over time. I've learned how to, you know, and I'm still learning and I'm still growing in that. It's really hard for me. Uh, one of the reasons why is because, like, I just have such a low tolerance. A low tolerance for ridiculousness. I really do. Theological immaturity. Low tolerance. Super low tolerance. And when I'm saying that, I'm not saying I'm talking about someone who's studying and learning and growing through stuff. I'm talking about just a person who's just unwilling to receive what you have to say as you're genuinely trying to correct them, as you're genuinely trying to work through things with them, especially as a pastor. It's like, you're my pastor up until you disagree with me. You're my pastor until you offend me. And then maybe I'm questioning whether you should be a pastor or not. When a pastor's job is to rebuke, correct, exhort, to, to, to teach you and admonish you and to raise you up into the Word and to, to build you up as a godly man and woman in Christ. And it's actually one of the hardest jobs to do. Think about it, it's not super popular. May I say it's probably why our church is not super big. Like not bursting at the seams with members, right? People desiring to become a member. Because it's hard. This word is hard to hear. Remember this though. Faithful to the wounds of a friend. You, you, you have, your real friend is the one who's willing to tell you. They see stuff in your life um, and you need to correct it. And, and profuse to the kiss of your enemy. Again, misery love company. Everyone's going to come alongside of you. If they're, if they're in sin and they love their sin, and they just want to embrace their sin and walk in their sin. And we all know this, guys. Like, what do they do? Oh, it's cool. They, they help you. They provide the ammunition for justification for your sins, don't they? They sure do. And I've experienced that a lot. Remember this. How well we receive correction is an indication. Not necessarily um, 
Exactly, but it's an indication of what group we're in. We're either wise or we're foolish. Who are you today? Are you going to be the wise or are you going to be the fool? Moves on into uh, verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts, corrupts the heart. So the wise who study the Word of God, this is what I believe this means, and they observe tyranny, they observe injustice and oppression, are often driven to grief, right? Especially of those who've walked with the Lord for a really long time. You see this and you're like, man, you know God's Word, and you're like, Lord, please. Like I, you talked about Asaph's psalm this morning, right? Uh, psalm 73, or 72, 73? 73, that's right. Asaph, is, he's grieving, right? He looks at the prosperity of the wicked, right? And he looks out at the world and all this injustice is happening and he's pleading with the Lord. He's like, Lord, why? Why do you beat up the righteous while you allow the wicked to prosper, right? Solomon tackles this in, in, uh, in Ecclesiastes 118. He says, in much wisdom comes much, much vexation. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. I believe this sorrow leads to this mourning, this righteous mourning that a person who has walked with God for any period of time is going to struggle with, is going to wrestle with. Now, the madness comes from studying and understanding the very philosophies and beliefs that lead to such and realize that we have no control or influence or stopping them. Think about that. When you know that you can't stop them and you know these philosophies are wicked, they're perverse, and you're trying to convince people, your beliefs are going to lead you to destruction. You might see this with your friends and family members. And the world is embracing them, right? The world looks at you as the haters. Uh, they call evil what is good and good what is evil, Isaiah says. Here you are just crying out to them and saying, hey, look, no, guys, like the LGBTQ agenda is not good. It's going to lead you to destruction. Ha, why are you so hateful? Guys at work, right, they do this to me all the time. Jeremy, just let people live. Let people love. And I'm like, and it's going to destroy them. So it's cool, man. Like, here, let me just pat your back all the way to destruction and not tell you that what you're doing is dangerous to your soul, dangerous to others, going to ruin your life. That's so hateful, right? And then they have this large group of people around them that go, oh yeah, he's so hateful. Let's get him off Twitter. Let's get him off Facebook, right? And then they have this huge group, this echo chamber that says those people are hateful and we're not. We're the loving ones because we're letting people love. Well, news 11, God's the one that defines love. God defines love. God describes what relationship structures ought to look like. And God's the one that tells you whether or not those paths will lead to destruction or not. Not me. It's God's word that I point to. And that's hard, guys. That's maddening in some cases. You see this, and they become a very oppressive people group. Um, you know, we call them the alphabet mafia for that reason. These people are ruthless, and they will come after you. They will destroy your lives. They will destroy your reputation. They will destroy everything they can in order to what? Preserve and protect their idea of love, their concept of community. And you're their enemy. You're their greatest enemy. And it's, it's a really hard group to deal with. Now, madness could lead one foolishly to taking manners, matters into one's own hands. And I believe this is exactly what uh, verses 8 uh, and 9 capture. We'll talk about that in a second. And worse, uh, capitulating, right? This idea that if you can't beat them, you'll join them. I, I, I do believe this is the concept that's being conveyed in the seeds being broadcasted. The parable of the seeds in Matthew 13, when Jesus talks about the broadcasting of God's word and the people receiving it. They take up, it's the one where they're really struggling. Joy of the Lord, bro. She can't, just can't be restrained, right? Um, we're, for those who are joining us, we're, this is purposeful. We want our kids to join us in celebration of the Lord, right? God. Some just do it out of control. We just need to order them. Um, so 
getting back to my point, um, the seed, this, the, the parable of the seed sower uh, talks about being choked up by the cares of the world. One of the examples is being choked up by the cares of the world. You receive the, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord with, with gladness, with joy, but then you get choked up with the cares of the world. And I believe, man, right now, guys, like, in some cases, my wife, I always joke with my wife and I tell her how like men just cannot succeed in this society because women are just being exalted to an undue status. You know, men are slowly but surely being, you know, pushed to the sidelines and women are being exalted to all these like amazing job opportunities. Like, you know, I'll, I'll go out and apply for something and it's like 15 applications, hoping for an interview, never get one. And my wife's just getting lavished with all these leadership positions. You know, it's like, what in the world? How does that happen? I can't get... I'm struggling, man. I want to provide for my family. Nope, sorry, you're a dude. You're a white dude, middle-aged guy. Uh-uh, you're racist uncontrollably. You can't even help it. Think about that. You live in a society that, that preaches that, and over time, what ends up happening is you capitulate. You're like, yeah, you become woke. You start speaking their language. You start eventually denying things in Scripture, like, yeah, maybe the LGBTQ thing is not too bad. I don't want to push too hard with the trannies, because... You know, that's a big thing right now. They're being celebrated, you know. I wouldn't definitely say that from the pulpit. That dude's crazy. He's probably definitely going to lose members now, right? Someone's going to be offended by what he just said. No way I would take a stand like that at work. I'll lose my job. Think about that. The fear of capitulation is so strong, especially in our society around those things right now. And it's maddening because you know that Scripture, God's Word, and then you start going, hmm, as you're choked up with the cares of the world, you go, eh, maybe I shouldn't stand that firm. Maybe I should just let my life preach as I love people, right? I just love people. That's the gospel. <laughs> That's my evangelism. Be careful with those thorny stuff. You know, maybe, maybe we just didn't understand what Paul meant in Romans 1 about they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe, or, or Corinthians or you know, other places. Let's not, let's not go there. Let's not get too crazy. We'll just talk about the love of Christ. Teddy bear Jesus. He's way more favorable in society right now than the King of kings and Lord of lords, who demands obedience to his word. Think about that. There is a can't beat him, join him mentality that starts to slip in. And then you start to will it. You think about bribes or a form of injustice, right? A turning of the eye for monetary gain. It's an act that leads to tyrannical oppression. The wicked prosper and they prolong their lives through evil doing at the cost of the righteous. That's a maddening thing to deal with. They pervert the way of justice as... Proverbs says. And we see that happening all over society today. So let me leave you with this last challenge. We'll just conclude here. I'll, I'll continue. Uh, I'll finish this up next week. But do we lament the state of our society and then patiently work toward a solution, trusting in the providential working of God through the crookedness? Or do we easily become overwhelmed and give up or worse, give in? You know, think about that. Like, are, are we that kind of people who just lay down? I've had people tell us, Jeremy, I don't know why you go to Planned Parenthood and try to encourage those women to keep their children. They are already bent on doing that. It just, it's, it's perceived the wrong way. People don't like your signs. You know, it says you're murdering children. That's really tough. Like, don't we want to create uh, a, a way that's more inviting, you know, that, that, that's more loving, you know, the loving Jesus side of things rather than it seems like condemnation? And my response is, no. Like, they're already condemned. They're already condemned. They need Christ. They need to be born again. Anybody who is bent on desiring to murder their child, their unborn child, is condemned already. It says those who, God hates, Proverbs 6, those who shed innocent blood. 
He hates it. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. We are called to rescue those who cannot defend themselves. To deliver them. We're called to uphold justice. We're called to not pervert it. Right? The people groan as the kings pervert justice. Think about it. So do we lament it? Do we just forget about it and just say that's part of a system that's just going to destroy, be destroyed anyway, it's going to hell in a handbasket? Or do we patiently uh, believe in God's providence as we pray for God's deliverance, as we pray for God to make a change? Are we the, the few, like Joshua and Caleb, who could look at a, a situation which seemed like impossible? Are we going to be giant slayers or are we going to be afraid of the giants? There's some giants out there in the land, but there's a lot of fruit, a lot of milk and honey. We're either going to be one of those two people. We're going to patiently work and trust in God's direction, or we're going to capitulate and give up and throw our towel in. So with that said, let us conclude this time in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that these words would have been faithful and well presented, that they would um, be consistent with what, what I believe Solomon is trying to convey here. Lord, that they would have been a challenge for us. That we be of the, 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 the righteous who hear your rebukes and receive them. That we be of the household of mourners. That we would lament. A righteous lamentation uh, of the perversity and the destruction of our city. The destruction of our nation. Right? That it would provoke us to make a change. That it would provoke us to proclaim the gospel of your kingdom. To see the advancement of your kingdom in our city and our state and beyond. Lord, knowing that you will change the hearts of men. We see quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 18 or 15, Lord, that uh, it is uh, Christ's kingdom that Lord will conquer his enemies. He's reigning presently now in the midst of his enemies and all enemies will be brought under his footstool. And he will ultimately hand the kingdom over to you, Father. That happens by the perseverance of the saints, by the saints taking a militant stance from the gospel. I'm not saying picking up arms, but arming themselves and equipping themselves with the Word of God, with His sword of the Spirit. Equipping themselves and recognizing they're in a battle, that they stand in formation and advance. The Gospel is advancing to the ends of the earth. Lord, that we would not be put off when people correct us, but receive it humbly. That we would confess our sins knowing that You are faithful to forgive. That we would grow in deeper relationships here as we advance in the kingdom, Lord, that we would not be overcome by evil, but knowing that you have overcome evil by power of your resurrection, your ascension, that we would entrust our lives to you as a faithful creator, despite the crookedness that we live in.